Lord. Right on. Thank you. The scripture reading today is from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. Jesus said, It is if a man going on a journey summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. The one who had received the five talents went off at once and traded with them and made five more talents. In the same way, the one who had the two talents made two more talents. But the one who had received the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. Then the one who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you handed over to me five talents. See, I have made five more talents." His master said to him, well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one with the two talents also came forward saying, master, you handed over to me two talents. See, I have made two more talents. His master said to him, well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Then the one who had received the one talent also came forward saying, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here is what, here you have what is yours. But his master replied, you wicked and lazy slave, you knew I Did you that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I did not scatter? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and on my return I would have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one with the ten talents. For to all those who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. As for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection. Gracious God, we ask now that you would help us to hear what it is that you want us to hear today. You've seen to it that we are gathered together in this space. Help us to know that you know us. You see us in all of our complexity, in all the ways that we get it, in all the ways that we don't get it, in all the ways that we're soaring, in all the ways that we are stuck. Whatever and however we find ourselves at this moment. Help us to know that you see us, you love us, and you were always and ever recklessly coming towards us to redeem, restore, 
renew, heal. Help us to believe that in your presence, we are in the safest place we can possibly be. And so help us now to be present to your already presence with us right now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we continue this series on the parables. This series we're calling Tell It Slant. Um, And this particular parable is quite the doozy, isn't it? Thank you for acknowledging that. Yeah, yeah. That last line is particularly encouraging. Aren't you glad you came to church? Let me just start by saying this parable is filthy rich. That's the first thing I want to say. It has a lot of money in it. I mean, a talent was one of the largest values of money in the Hellenistic world. I mean, we just have eight talents mentioned in this story, but that we think represents around $4 million in today's money. That's just a smidgen of what this, of this master's holding. So warning to talk about this parable, got to talk about money. You know, I was involved as a campus minister for six years from 1990 to 1996, and I was talking to a college student uh, back in those days, and I remember I just, I did this with a lot of students. I'd say, well, tell me about your family. How about your family life? And this is what he said to me. He said, well, everything was great in my family until my dad hit it big. He would come home before he hit it big, and we'd, you know, have a beat-up old bucket, a five-gallon bucket of golf balls, and we'd go out to some abandoned lot, and we had these broken golf clubs, and we'd just hit golf balls for hours. It was awesome. And then he hit it big. And he joined a country club that put all the golf balls in a perfect pyramid on a driving range. <laughs> He said, I kind of feel like I lost my dad after that. Now, this is not a diatribe against pyramid golf balls, okay? That's that's okay if you like that kind of thing, or even country clubs, I suppose. I don't know. I can critique that all day. But the point that I'm telling you is that money is not neutral. Money is not neutral. It's powerful. It can change the entire dynamic in relationships. It has power to do good, power to do evil, but it's it's not just sitting there. Somebody says to me, Fred, is money good or bad? Well, it's like asking, is fire good or bad? Fire in the fire pit is great. Fire in the rug and going up the curtains, not so much. Fire is not neutral. Money is not neutral. There's a reason Jesus talks so much about possessions and money and why he said that thing that we've all heard probably, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So, What we're learning in all of these parables that we're doing in in this series is that they kind of can be divided, these parables of Jesus, into two categories. Parables that attempt to unmask and critique the way things really are, and parables that give a vision for how things could be. A lot of parables will start with the kingdom of heaven is like, or the kingdom of God is like, and so on. In this parable, I think we have a little bit of both, and I'll explain in just a minute. And while Jesus was, you know, using all sorts of very accessible ideas and language and and experiences of life, things like being in debt or shepherding or farming or banquets or being excluded from banquets or rich homes and poor people, all these things are easy to access, but it's not always easy to understand what Jesus is getting at in his parables. One scholar suggested that perhaps parables should best be understood as a cross between a riddle and a zen cone, a cross between a joke, a puzzle, and a pool of wisdom. 
And the thing that makes these parables puzzling is to try to figure out what exactly is that wisdom Jesus is trying to impart with this parable that just has me perplexed. I love what uh, Barbara Brown Taylor said. She said, how you hear a parable has a lot to do with where you are hearing it from. How you hear a parable has a lot to do with where you're hearing it from. And I think this parable has two legitimate directions for us to take. And like most parables, I like my options here. I like both directions. And since it's a parable, we can play with both of them and see what comes up for us in the process. So what I'm going to give you today is a, ser- is a sermon about a parable, but I'm going to give you two interpretations, both very legit. And I just want you to ask yourself, what am I hearing right now? What, how, is it, how is it landing with me, this interpretation? And how is this interpretation? And what do I need? To, how do I need to respond to that? First interpretation, the most frequent one is we throw the one talent man under the bus. <laughs> it's not an illogic, it actually really makes sense in many ways in terms of how people have interpreted this parable. Um, the one talent man is a coward. He has a lack of courage. I mean, it's all about the one talent man. The first two, you know, they did this. It's all about what's going on with that third person. The one talent man is a coward. He hasn't invested. He hasn't lacked courage to do that. And this is talking about how we steward the talents, the money, the resources, the the privilege, the power that God has given us. It's a great lesson for us to learn. It's a warning about passivity. It actually fits the context pretty well. It disrupts business as usual by recommending risk rather than timid caution. It fits well with what follows when Jesus talks about judgment for those who have hoarded their resources at the expense of the poor, the stranger, the immigrant, the marginalized, and so on. We are to risk pouring out our abilities, pouring out our influence on their behalf. 100% totally legit interpretation of this parable. It's only really problematic if you insist on some one-to-one correlation with the character of the master in the story being the character of God revealed in Jesus. Now, we've, in previous weeks, we have spent time on this talking about how we look at parables. And that these tidy one-to-one correlations are an awful, actually, way to read the parables. They're not meant to be read that way. Because if you do that way, in this parable, you would make God out to be a hard-hearted, ruthless, absentee landlord who cares only about profit maximization. Sounds just like the God revealed in Jesus Christ, doesn't it? No, not at all. And so we need not go there at all. Um, The other interpretation is that the one-talent man isn't a coward, but a hero. But a hero. The original audience would have heard and immediately recognized Jesus ascribing a huge, very wealthy household, the closest thing we might have today to a corporation. Um, It was quite common for the patriarch of a household to go away on business, be it economic or political, His affairs would have been handled by slaves who in Roman society often arose to responsible uh, positions in the household hierarchy, and they would be called stewards, but they were still slaves, mind you. Those in the original audience knew all too well how the imperial economy works. Who gets rich? 
and who suffers as a result. Who gets rich? The large landowners are the ones who get rich, who made loans to peasant small landowners based on speculation about future crops. They were the ones who were raking it in. Often those crops failed, payments didn't come, and those peasants faced foreclosure. Sound familiar? Yeah, the process of economic exploitation and wealth accumulation is all too recognizable in our own global economy. So, the question you may be asking is, how is the one-talent man a hero again, Fred, exactly? Where is that coming from? The interpretation is this, he refuses to play the game. He refuses to play the game. And in fact, this man is a whistleblower. Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you did not scatter seed. Can you hear that? He unmasks the fact that the master profits from the backbreaking labor of those who work the land. He's unwilling to participate in the exploitation. So the third slave took the money out of circulation where it could no longer be used to dispossess another family farmer. He repudiates the system, giving the talent back to his master with a curt, here, you have what is yours. So which interpretation is best? I don't know. <laughs> Both are legitimate. The question is, a better question is, how does the shoe fit for you this morning? Let's apply both of them and then continue to push that a bit. First, the one-talent man is a coward or is one who plays it too safe with money. I can relate. He's a person who's operating out of scarcity, not abundance, operating out of fear instead of risking while trusting in God's provision. I can think of at least three questions um, this first interpretation answers about money. The first is, where did it come from? Second is, what do I do with it? And the third is, how do I enjoy it? And where does it come from? Verse 14 says that when Jesus begins to tell this parable, he says the man summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. Entrusted it to them. No matter how much or how little you have, the lesson is, all is a gift from God. Everything you have is a gift from God. Somebody says, no, 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 wait a second. You don't know how hard I've worked to get what I have today. You don't know I have worked my whatever off for what I have right now. I'm not a cussing pastor for those of you who are, are new, so fill in the blanks. First of all, I just want you to know I believe you. I believe you. In fact, so many of you have had to work way harder than me to get where you are today. You have developed and honed your skills against great odds. I respect that immensely. And, and I think we're all tempted, if we're really honest, to believe we did it all by ourselves. And forgetting that there are all sorts of ways we had nothing to do with our success. A parent who believed in you. A friend who supported you. A partner who made you believe in yourself. A connection with a friend that helps you land the job. I mean, the list goes on and on if we will do the inventory. So everything's a gift entrusted to you. The second thing is, what do I do with it? Well, if the money's not ours, we have to see ourselves as trustees. 
and stewards. I mean, what if somebody came to you and said, look, I'm going to give you access to my large estate. You're going to be my trustee. And what I want you to do with this is I want you to invest it in the following ways. And you get the bullet point. And you take that money and you go, you know, there's this property right on the ocean in Pebble Beach. And you buy it. Now, we wouldn't call you greedy for doing that. We wouldn't, even, we wouldn't call you miserly. or You know what we'd call you? A thief. That's what we would call you. You would be subject to being prosecuted and thrown in jail if you did such a thing. I think this is why the Bible uses some pretty loaded language. You know, if you're raised in church, you know the passage in the book of Malachi um, in the Old Testament where it says that people who weren't bringing their tithes to support the temple system were robbing God. Well, it's based on this idea that all we have belongs to God and we are stewards and trustees of that. And so the warning of the parable who doesn't invest, um, the person who doesn't invest but buries their talent is not called frugal later, but lazy and even wicked in that harsh language at the end of the parable. But parables are laden with extreme language. We've learned that from the past. Some of you have heard this story before, but I'll tell it again. I remember years ago, I was invited to be, sit on a panel at the Commonwealth Club, and the topic was homelessness. I was the token religious person on the panel. Um, I'll tell you, there were hundreds of other pastors who should have been up there other than me, doing far more sacrificial and beautiful work on that particular thing in our city, in service to the city. But I was asked, so I went, and I was scared to death. On the panel was Gavin Newsom, who at that point was running for mayor. He was a supervisor here at the time. Um, there was this fellow who ran the free clinic in Haight-Ashbury. There was a person from Boston who was a real policy wonk on homelessness and had all sorts of stats. I was just lost up there listening to all the information. So like, oh, I hope they don't call on me. Um, one of the police officers from one of the more difficult areas of our city, I mostly listened and suddenly a softball was thrown at me and somebody said, well, what do you think, Reverend? And I said something along the lines of this. I said, well, I said, here's what I'm wondering all the money needed to address these issues we're talking about on this panel is already present in the city of San Francisco. It's already here. The question is how can we develop people to see the responsibility to invest in our city instead of using it as their personal playground? What kind of spiritual process might there be where people don't use money as a way of measuring their worth but as an opportunity to bless those who don't have enough. There was silence in the room. And then Gavin Newsom leaned into his microphone and said, no more questions for me after that answer. <laughs> it's like, yes. <laughs> there was a little nervous laughter in the room. I then proceeded to invite everyone to come to City Church at that event. So there's that. <laughs> so if you made your way from the Commonwealth Club back in 2003, we're glad you're here. See, when we see ourselves as trustees and stewards of our resources, we invest it to see others thrive. And so how do we then enjoy our money is that last question. And you'll notice there is the word joy. I know it's hard to see the word joy given some of the harsher realities of the parable. But there is the word joy in the parable where it says that enter into the joy of your master. And so we might say that God wants to relationally partner with you in healing the world and in so doing, share in God's joy. 
And what does God take joy in? Everyone having enough. The poor being cared for. Injustice is made right. The opportunity for all images of God to thrive. For this world to be cared for with wisdom. And what else does God love? The bumpy and messy local church. Of which you're a part which is an engine of renewal and life change on a daily basis. God wants you to invest in that. That's where you have relationships and accountability. That's where you have people who are there to support you and walk with you in your life when everything goes awry, and it does. Torelli and I know that of all the places we give, it is only our church that will walk with us and walk with you through joy and sorrow and sadness and pain. And it's our church and our community that gets our absolute priority in our giving. I invite you to do the same. While giving to external nonprofits is vitally important, and we do a lot of that as well, your church has invested you in a unique, invested in you in a unique and profound way. So, interpretation number one. Somebody's saying, did he just get in a little thing about giving to the church in the midst of this sermon? The answer would be yes. Um, interpretation one is all about the invitation to bold generosity with your resources because it all belongs to God. Because you're responsible to be God's trustee to invest because God's had plans for your money and those plans will result in entering into God's joy. Somebody says, yeah, that's uncomfortable. Move on to the other interpretation. Thank you. So interpretation two is all about the invitation to be generous with your courage. With your courage. See, the one talent man, by this rendering of the story, has really done some personal interior work to say, I will no longer be complicit. Probably someone who we could say has been very much complicit for many years, but at some point hit a wall and said, no more. I will not do this any longer. Have you had a moment like that in your life? Somebody might be thinking, Fred, are you asking me to be woke? Well, nobody is woke. According to one of my teachers, Christina Cleveland, she says, but all of us can choose to be on a journey of enlightenment. And that will always involve interrogating how we are complicit in oppression, knowingly or not. That's part of what it means to follow Jesus. How I benefit from oppressive systems rigged to enrich people who look like me. How I can stand with the stigmatized and take on the stigma emulating Jesus who himself was identified with the poor, the oppressed, the marginalized, the stigmatized. How may I may be called to do something completely counterintuitive like bury a talent and not participate in the game. This will take a generosity of courage because no one likes disruptors of the status quo. It got Jesus killed but God used it to heal the world in the process. It will probably feel like getting thrown into the outer darkness when you do that. But that is the way of the cross. When you are speaking truth to power, 
when you are standing with the stigmatized, when you are taking the side of the oppressed, the upside of that, Jesus is already there and will meet you there in profound and life-changing ways. So both of these interpretations kind of end up in the same place. They both call us to a generosity of courage. The courage to give away our money in sacrificial, eye-popping proportions will take courage. God has plans for that money. To participate with God and in, in, in know the general joy of generosity. But also to refuse to participate in systems of oppression will take courage. Does take courage. God has plans for the flourishing of human beings in this planet. And the invitation is to participate with God and know the joy of standing with Jesus and the disinherited. So which of these interpretations do you need to hear today? Or as Barbara Brown Taylor said, how you hear a parable has a lot to do with where you are hearing it from. So where are you hearing this parable from? today. Do you need the courage to live more generously? I mean, if you're really going to ask hard questions of yourself and be really honest, could you really describe the way you give of your resources right now as sacrificial or as bearing the burdens of others, which is another way of saying to intentionally take on discomfort so that others might have enough? Hard questions. I've counseled so many congregants over the years that made more money than they ever expected to make in one lifetime. Fascinating conversations. Having spent their money lavishly, they find themselves with a particular infection, the love of money. It's a misery of wondering what on earth can make you happy if this doesn't. I'm reminded of the Jim Carrey quote where he says, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. And I think the cure for that particular infection is to give it away. To give it away, to be liberated. Do you need the courage to give more generously today? Or... Do you need the courage to participate, to refuse to participate in systems of oppression? I was speaking with someone recently who was agonizing over the church they attend. I get these calls a lot. They're in a church that is stigmatizing policies towards women or towards their LGBTQ friends, or usually both, sadly. They say, I'm affirming, but I love the worship. I'm affirming, but... All their friends go here. My friends go here. And they have created justifications for staying in that church. Now, I want you to know, I'm not judgmental in these phone calls. I enjoy trying to be a bridge to people, to to invite into a more fuller, expansive, generous, and just expression of Christian faith. I know it's complicated. But I usually ask them to listen to the growing dissonance in their own soul to consider that it may be an index, index to the reality of their complicity. So a generous courage is needed so that all 
may be liberated. What kind of courage do you need today? That's the challenge of this multifaceted parable. And regardless of the interpretation that fits best with you today where you are, the motivation for all of it is always the generosity that Jesus Christ has extended to you. This call to a generosity of courage must always be framed in the light of Jesus, what he taught, how he lived, how he laid down his life for this world to be reconciled. That generosity is the inspiration for ours. So whatever courage you need today, it's an invitation to joy. It's an invitation to joy. Will you receive it? So what we're going to do is, is we're going to finish this time together by praying a prayer together by Henry Nouwen. Let's pray. Together, dear God, I am so afraid to open my clenched fists. Who will I be when I have nothing left to hold on to? Who will I be when I stand before you with empty hands? Please help me to gradually open my hands and discover that I am not what I own, but what you want to give me. And what you want to give me is love, unconditional, everlasting love. Amen. Okay, friends, as we move now into a time of our service, we talk about offering. Uh, I want to give you 